All right, everyone, welcome. Thank you all for being here today. I know that we're a little behind our normal schedule, but trust me, my sermon is not as long as usual, and here's how. It's going to have a shorter introduction today. All right, Um, but if you would, turn with me to Judges chapter 1, and as you turn there, uh, I will let you know on this next slide here, we have a QR code. You can scan that with your phone. And that link will take you to the church website where you can actually download all these sermon notes. Yeah, we're getting fancy. I mean, you know, it's cool. You can download stuff. I will encourage you to do that for several reasons, not the least of which is there is a lot of important background information going on as it relates to judges. And so there's some notes in there that I believe will be helpful. Um, To give us a little bit of background on that, uh, I'll just remind you of the overview of how we get to judges. Uh, You all know that the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Uh, They are written by Moses, and a little side note in case a skeptic bugs you with this, it was common for a scholar to have a scribe or his protege write his death into his own writing. Um, And so when people are like, this can't have been written by Moses, his death is in it. Like, yes, we understand, but that was a common practice. Very likely Joshua or another scribe would have taken care of that, in case you're worried about that. But anyway, Genesis, of course, begins with creation. We see the fall of man. We see God use the flood to redeem and rescue a small number of people and destroy the wicked. And then we see God raise up Abraham, uh, makes a covenant with Abraham. We see Isaac and Jacob and God make individual, although a kind of a continuation of this covenant with Abraham. We see Joseph be sold into slavery. We see him serve as a rescuer to his family by bringing them to Egypt in order to be able to not starve to death during the famine. Notice we see in all of Genesis a theme of God having people that he has called, and then using them to rescue the remainder of his people. Cool thing. Of course, Exodus begins with the children of Israel having multiplied. They're in slavery in Egypt. And what does God do? He sends a rescuer in the form of Moses. Moses serves, by the way, as a type of Christ. He's pointing forward to our ultimate redeemer, Christ. We see, of course, them exiting, we call it the Exodus for a reason, exiting from, uh, from Egypt with God's wonderful hand upon them. Uh, we see them wandering in the wilderness. We see God make a covenant with them and then give his law there at the end of Exodus. Uh, I will sell, tell you, we can summarize Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as just law, law, and more law. Um, that's what happens there. Praise the Lord for it, though. A little side note, we have too negative of a view of the law sometimes. Go back and read it's, it's not a burdensome law. Um, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing that we still could not fulfill. Anyway, uh, we of course see in Joshua, Joshua is the one who God also has given as the Redeemer. little side note, his name as it is pronounced then uh, sounds pretty much exactly like Jesus' name. Um, that's not by accident. Uh, Joshua conquers Canaan, although not completely. And so we see here at the beginning of Judges uh, the way that this kind of meets here is that now we see the death of Joshua and we see what happens following that. So join in with me a little bit in this. Uh, Of course, we believe this to be about around the 14th or 13th century BC. Um, This is between Joshua's death and the rise of Samuel and Saul and the subsequent kings of Israel. If you're looking at where this fits in just kind of general how the secular people will, will date things, this would be in the late Bronze Era. 
Uh, interesting thing that's happening in the late Bronze Era is we're seeing the rise of empires. Rather than just a little city-state here and there, we're seeing some conglomeration. With that uh, comes a lot of destruction. The population is actually decreasing in a lot of places during the late Bronze Age. Interestingly enough, though, in places like mountainous regions, like Canaan and where the Israelites are, are living, we actually see small communities thriving and kind of holding society together. Really interesting thing. As we will see, the children of Israel are facing some persecution in this area, but it's a different type of persecutor than we're going to see later on when Babylon, an empire, comes and brings more persecution. That's all later on. Here's a key theme, and you know we do this anytime we do a study of the book of the Bible. I'll point out that there is kind of an outline to the book. There is a repeating outline, much like in Acts, we kind of saw this positive outline uh, that was kind of, you know, good things were happening along with bad. Judges, I will just tell you right now, has a lot of bummer going on. Uh, the cycle here is that Israel falls into idolatry and God judges them by allowing them to be oppressed somehow. The people cry out for deliverance because, hey, nobody likes to be oppressed. And then God sends a judge to bring about some deliverance. Here's what's important about that judge, though. The judge is really fixing a symptom of the deeper problem. He's not quite on the level of a Joshua or a Moses. A judge fixes the problem temporarily and reminds us that this is not the real fix. Because what always ends up happening is the cycle continues. As soon as the judge is dead, Israel falls into more idolatry, and we see this repeated throughout the book of Judges. Pay attention to this because it's going to matter. And can I just tell you, we're not just giving a history lesson, although we are. Um, we're going to start seeing some key themes related to the children of Israel and some of the things the American church is going through right now. We didn't just say, hey, let's just do a history lesson, although that's wonderful. We wanted to say, what is a study that will speak to where we are at right now as believers in our culture? And I believe Judges has something to say. And I will tell you, as much as there's bummers in the book of Judges, there's some real hero stories. There's some accounts of wonderful things happening. And the big thing that it's pointing to that is really, really good news is something that has already happened. There's hope, brothers and sisters. All right, so some key themes, of course, is apostasy on Israel's part, oppression, we've already mentioned this. But we're going to see a theme that God remains faithful while his people are faithless. His faithfulness doesn't mean he just winks at their sin. His faithfulness means he stays just and he still loves his people even when he's allowing them to suffer. We'll also see the theme that judges don't fix the problem. And the ultimate theme that we'll see is that Israel needs a king. Uh, in fact, the theme verse comes at the end of the book rather than at the beginning. The theme verse is Judges 21:25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That theme, brothers and sisters, that very phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, should sound very familiar to us right now. We are in a time where people even teach, do what feels good to you. Does it seem right? Does it feel right? You should do that. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. You are your own master. You're your own God. You create your own destiny. This is the heresy that ultimately was first taught in the garden and that is now taught, or that was then taught here in Judges, and sadly is taught right now in our culture. So key thing, brothers and sisters, Israel needs a king. Now I need to make a side note on this. 
If you know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Samuel comes along after Judges. I'm looking ahead, way ahead, so don't worry. And, um, and Samuel is to some degree leading the people with God as ultimately their king. And you might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 9, the people of Israel want what? A king like other kingdoms. And what does God say? All right, suckers, I'm going to give it to you. He says it much more godly than I just said it. But he's like, I will give you what you want as a punishment. And he gives them a king like other kingdoms. And what does that king do? He oppresses them. He overtaxes them. He conscripts their children for war. Uh, and it's a bad thing. A lot of people will say that God ultimately, the king that God, that God had planned was David. And yes, he did have that planned. But can I just tell you, well, maybe should I ask, is David a perfect king? Well, no. But does David possibly give us just a little kind of pointing forward to an ultimate king? Uh, he does. I want to tell you all very, very cautiously, David is part of God's plan. And when we say here that Judges says that, that the theme of Judges is that Israel needs a king, yes, it's true. But keep in mind that Samuel, the story in, in 1 Samuel begins with the people of Israel rejecting the ultimate king, and that is God. Right? So David, even David becomes a temporary fix. He's part of God's plan. Don't hear the wrong thing here. Because ultimately, the king that Israel needs is Jesus Christ. Just like the king that we need is Jesus Christ. And I will tell you again, there's his rule is not merely a spiritual rule, brothers and sisters. It is a rule that has an effect on civil authority as well. So, more on that later. All right. Um, very, very briefly, I'm not going to read all of, uh, of Judges chapter 1. It is mostly introduction. I'm just going to point out, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that you might fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into your territory allotted to you. Keep in mind, what's happened is that various parts of the tribes of Israel have been given different parts of land. They've got to go and conquer those lands, and they're making agreements like, hey, help me go and kill all these people. I'll help you go and kill all the people in your land. It's going to be good. And what we notice, I'll just kind of skip through, just because, partially because of time, but also because of, you'll see some repetition here. Um, they do that. Um, we see that there is an ongoing conquering, and it goes pretty well. Um, we'll see all the way through about verse 26 uh, that there's some good conquering going on. Praise the Lord. Israel does indeed conquer parts of Canaan, and we say praise the Lord for it. Um, you can take us on through, brother, all to about verse 26. All right. Um, and you'll notice something, though. That immediately after this, for some reason, they decide they're going to stop with the conquest. And so that brings us to this uh, last part, beginning in verse 27. We see where it says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen. And then we go on in verse 29. It mentions Ephraim not doing that, Zebulun not driving out inhabitants. And then it goes on. We go from plenty of conquering that went just fine to all of a sudden, Everybody just seems to stop. Now, I will, maybe it's worth just acknowledging a little side note here. Anytime we start talking about God's people conquering nations and, and cleaning house, I mean, there's times where he says, kill every man, woman, and child. 
And I know that there are those, especially among progressivists, but also, which I like to would say they're truly regressivists rather than progressivists. I mean, I mean that, not just to be comical, but um, the progressivists are moving us more into paganism. Well, paganism is, that's the old way, right? The new way is Christ. And so I'm like, don't pretend to be progressive. You are regressive, and we see all of the effects of that as well. But even among faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, have you noticed we kind of cringe a little bit when we hear about the idea of, of just a bunch of people being killed? Well, Judges is going to be one of the ways that we get to see, ah, here's why God said to do that. Um, be comfortable with the fact that God is perfectly just and sovereign. And if he says to do something, it is the right thing. Praise God for that good news. Um, but for whatever reason, the people of Israel decide we're not going to run out all these Canaanites. So let's pick up in Judges chapter 2 um, at verse 1 where we get into the nitty-gritty of all this. All right. Um, God be with us as we study this section, Lord. May we heed it well, illuminate the word of God to us. Fill me with your spirit that I would proclaim what is true, not more and not less than what you want me to say. And then um, may we be wise as the sons of Issachar were to the times uh, that we would obey you in this season. In Christ's name, amen. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. Uh, I need to point out a couple of things from this passage. Uh, first of all, we see it is the angel of the Lord that shows up. If you recall other angel of the Lord passages, there's something really interesting about this angel of the Lord, because he's not just an angel. He seems to refer to himself as God. He uses the first person singular and says, I told you this, I told you. And we see many other times where the angel of the Lord very clearly seems to be God himself showing up. We call this a theophany. Uh, it is a pre-incarnate revelation, a pre-incarnate physical presence of God. We generally believe this to be the second person of the Trinity, we believe this to be Jesus, pre-incarnate. Now, that part we're speculating on, uh, but what we do know is this is God. Um, I mean, very clearly, this angel of the Lord is God. Keep that in mind. That is very, very important. Notice something. That part of the plan that God had, he says, I'm keeping my covenant with you, and I want you to go into this land, conquer these people, and destroy their altars. There was, built into this plan, a reality that the people of Israel were to destroy the false gods and the false worship of the Canaanite pagans. There wasn't a, let's allow religious freedom for this. There was a, we're going to destroy them and their false gods because we serve the one true God. Now, a side note that's worth mentioning is that we do believe in some form of freedom of worship. I don't believe that worship of God should be forcibly compelled, and we get that idea from Scripture. 
And so some people are like, well, why would they want to stop all this worship? When you find out how the Canaanites worshipped and what it was that they did, you will understand why it absolutely had to be destroyed. Uh, People can worship falsely and will say, that's wrong, you need to repent and believe the gospel. And then there are forms of worship that involve themselves abominations that have to be destroyed. So what does God do? He commands them to destroy their altars and not enter into any type of covenants with those people. What do the people do? They disobey God. They refuse to destroy all of the altars and they enter into covenants with the Canaanite people. And this creates a really big problem. Two big gods that we need to know about related to the the Canaanites. Uh, There were others, but Ashtoreth and Baal were the two big ones. Um, Ashtoreth is kind of interesting. She was considered kind of a goddess of the moon. She's thought to be the sister to Baal, who was supposedly the god of the sun. Um, Worship involved a lot of sensuality. There was temple prostitution. We believe that there was even some forms of transgenderism and homosexuality built into Ashtoreth worship because Ashtoreth was believed to be able to change genders. I don't know about you, but that's oddly familiar. All right. Um, Continuing on, divination and fortune-telling were also part of Ashtoreth worship, and her name was associated with the forest. And so we think, we we would actually say that the idol to Ashtoreth was usually an Ashtoreth pole, which was a limbless tree trunk that they would carve her symbol or her image into. You might recall that in 2 Kings, King Manasseh actually put an Ashtoreth pole in the temple, in God's house. So when God said, these people are going to be a snare to you, he wasn't kidding. I mean, we're, we're all the way up into the age of the kings that this became, this continued to be an issue. Uh, but we see this, can, this pagan worship, man, it went for a long time. We, of course, see it brought up here in Judges 1 and 2, Judges 3, Judges 6, Judges 10, 1 Samuel 7 and 12. Ashtra becomes a big problem. But sadly, she's not the only one. She might not even be the main one. Uh, Baal was the other big one. And most of us, some, not everybody remembers Ashtoreth, uh, but, but Baal most of us have heard of, right? Uh, Baal was considered the sun god. Uh, he was powerful. He's probably believed to be the most powerful of the Canaanite gods. Uh, associated with, of course, the sun and storms. And he functioned as a fertility god. So temple prostitution was believed to excite him and that as a result of the sensuality that was taking place, that he was going to make the, the, the ground more fertile, he was going to make you have more kids, whatever was going to be seen as prosperity, he was going to bring it about. So notice for Baal worship, you engage in sexual sin, and then you do all these other things, and that helps make your life better. Make sense? So you get to do something that sounds sinful and fun, and then he's going to give you more. Also should sound somewhat familiar. Some interesting things here. Of course, temple prostitution was part of it. But uh, like this ecstatic loss of self-control was also part of the worship. Uh, it often involved self-mutilation. Uh, we see this when, uh, when Elijah is going up against the prophets of Baal. It's, it's like a whole thing. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to get Baal's attention. Um, and then I have to just point out child sacrifice becomes a big part of it. You'll kind of notice uh, you have both in Ashtoreth worship and in Baal worship, there's temple prostitution, there's sexuality to sensuality. Uh, It so happens that that results in pregnancy sometimes. Um, And so then people now want to do something with these children that they were not planning on, and so they sacrifice them to Baal. 
can we just kind of point out that I don't want to stretch this too far, but, but can I just point out that when we look at paganism, not just in the Canaanites, but in pretty much every culture, look at Norse worship, and I, I hate to even call it mythology. Mythology gives it the idea that it's like this, you know, oh, it's just kind of this fun stories. No, no, no. They worshiped these gods. They believed that they were real. And let me just tell you, if we see how Jesus describes Beelzebub, he describes Satan as Beelzebub, which seems to be a derivative of Baal Zebub, the implication there is that Baal, yeah, just an idol, just wood, but behind that idol is a real demon that is really being worshipped and can I say is probably doing real wonders. Can we just be honest about that? These were not just ignorant people that made stuff up all the time. We know that that probably happened as well. But there was probably real creepy, weird stuff that made them say, hey, whatever that's going on there, I'm going to worship it because it's stronger than me. And that's why in all of the Old Testament and into the New, when God's people shows up, one of the things that God does is say, see these gods? I'm better than all of them. We see every one of the Egyptian gods conquered in Exodus. And God's like, look, you can't control the Nile like I can. You can't do this like I can. And he decimates every one of them. Now we're supposed to see it in Canaan. And we see a little bit of it where God shows, but then they keep on worshiping those false gods. Anyway, so all that said, though, can we just kind of acknowledge, we say often it's Christ or chaos. Either you will worship the one true God or you will worship the creation, as Romans 1 says. And what we see here is what is happening right now. And can you just notice that self-mutilation, transgenderism, homosexuality, sexual sin, uh, abortion, these things tend to go with what's happening in a secularized culture. Because you will either worship the one true God or you will worship his creation and you will fall into great error. Everybody with me? Does this make sense? I hope I'm not stretching it too much. I'm just pointing out what was pretty much the obvious. So I will, okay, a very brief side note related to application. And I normally save application in the end, but I'm just going to deliver it now. Um, God wanted them to destroy the Canaanite religions. He did not want them to make covenants. He did not want them to play nice. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying we need to go and just kill everybody that doesn't believe in Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say, We do not parlay with people who want to murder children. We don't parlay with people who want to mutilate children. We don't play that game. It's not what God, like, as soon as you allow for a little bit of it, you will be up to your neck in murderers who will ask you and force you to put your own children on that chopping block. We will not tolerate it. So I will just mention a side note. We know right now that there are those who are trying to pass a a law here in Ohio that will make it a constitutional right to have an abortion and to mutilate children, and it will also risk your ability to protect your children from those who are coming after them. Pray that it doesn't happen. They need 413,000 signatures in order to get it on the ballot in November. Pray that it does not happen. Pray that they lose their signatures. Pray that God brings them to judgment. Here's another little side note. You all might know on August 8th, there is a vote for issue one, which will make them need more than just a simple majority to add that on. Uh, It would be a constitutional amendment to say, hey, you've got to get a 60% vote to add a constitutional amendment. I'll just encourage you. I'm I'm probably legally not allowed to do this. I will tell you, please go out and vote for issue one so that it passes, so that we have a harder time allowing people to sacrifice children to Moloch and Baal and Ashtoreth. That's just where we're at. Anyway, um, 
This is why we're studying judges. Uh, that was not a side note. That's a very much a note. Anyway, all right, let's continue in Judges 2. Um, oh, but can I, can I say this too? This is happening because the people of Israel are compromising with the enemy, probably in the name of being nice. They're like, aren't you tired of killing all these Canaanites, knocking down their altars? It really hurts their feelings, right? How many times we've been told, play nice, like, you know, the, the trans people are really suffering. I know they are. That's why I'm calling them to repentance. How many times that even the whisper of, I, I, you know, what you're doing is not right. Can I tell you how many times I've gently and lovingly pled and said, I, you know, and, and how many times they stomp on it and take more? I will tell you there is no, preach the gospel in love. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying don't let them pass their laws. We allowed them to pass laws that allowed for them to marry each other, to take something that was sacred in God's sight. That's idolatry, and we let it happen. Now we're facing the effects of it. I'm, man, I know I'm on it, but this is it. We're, this is what we're talking about. Um, I'll get to you in a second, brother. Sorry, I want to hear though. Um, so Judges 2, for the sake of time, i gotta, I got to click us on. Verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance, to the possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So these are the people who, ser- who came out of Egypt. Like, they're still serving the Lord. Like God said, there's going to be this awful judgment. It's going to be terrible, right? It's, this is, you're going to have a snare here. It's going to be really, really bad. And, um, and yet it continues positively in Joshua's life and in all the elders that were there. Um, it says, uh, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath, <clears throat> at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Notice what this is saying. That the people who saw the great works of God when he redeemed them out of Egypt, now they're all passing on. It says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, do you guys remember about a month ago we preached on Deuteronomy 6? And part of the message of Deuteronomy is God says, here's how I want to be worshipped. Here's all the things you need to know about me. Here's all the essentials. By the way, when you're worshipping like this, the, your kids are going to ask, why are we doing this? Because our neighbors don't do this. Why do, isn't this weird, Dad? Why are we worshipping God in this way? And you're supposed to turn with them and say, I was there. I saw it when God redeemed us out of Egypt. He rescued us, and we worship him because he's the one true God who destroyed all of the Egyptian gods. He can destroy all of the Ashtoreths and the Baals, and he's our God, and he's faithful and true, and this is why we worship like this, and kid, this is why we do this. And guess what? The big fat didn't do it. It says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. As the parents didn't teach it to their kids like God commanded commanded worship, he commanded very faithful worship, and then he commanded how to teach the kids out of that worship, and they clearly didn't do it. Because it doesn't just say, well, they weren't the witnesses of it. It says they didn't know God. They didn't even know about what he had done. Brothers and sisters, if we want to redeem our culture and save us from the brink that we're on, disciple your kids. 
bring them to church. Make sure that the worship of the Lord on the Lord's Day is a priority over everything else. Don't let softball or anything else get in the way. And I think of all the Baptist pastors that would preach against softball or preach against whatever. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to sound just like them because they warned us for what we're facing right now. Can I tell you, I've been in ministry a long time now. I know I shave my beard. I look young. Um, but I've been at this a while. And can I just tell you how many times I've watched every time I see it. They prioritize everything else, and they can't figure out why their kids don't love Jesus when they turn 19. Like, it's because you didn't love Jesus. You didn't prioritize the things of God. And here we are. You didn't teach them the truth of the gospel. And now, now we're watching your kids follow after the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and you wonder why. Well, this is why. Anyway, man. I asked the pastors this, or the elders this morning, I messaged them, like, guys, I don't feel like my sermon has punch. Would you pray for me? I think they did. Anyway, um... Continuing on in verse 11, it says, and the people, some of you are like, hey, maybe dial back the prayers. Uh, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord has warned, and as the Lord has sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. I think it's pretty clear. I cannot serve false gods and expect God to fight for me when the time comes. Uh, I I don't want to go and make too many parallels and, and stretch this at all. But can I say, obey God. Whatever idols are in your heart, be they pornography, be they fits of anger, be they greed, whatever it is, now is a time to murder those sins because if you don't kill those sins, they will absolutely get in the way of anything else we might try to do to redeem this culture. Repent, brothers and sisters. You might notice that there's like ways in which our sermons tie together. We taught a sermon on killing sin back, I think, in May. This is why. Continuing on, uh, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from, uh, from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge." For the judge was moved to pity by their groanings because of all those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Notice this. It's a downward spiral. It gets worse, it seems, with every generation. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. It means they continued in idolatry. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because of this people... Uh, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Notice, remember, this theme here is a downward spiral. Uh, God's people fall into idolatry and direct disobedience. God judges them with suffering. They cry out to God. He sends a judge. They sort of kind of barely listen to the judge enough that they're redeemed, but they don't truly repent in their hearts. And the whole thing starts over again, but the next time it seems worse. The conclusion, the message, what we see as we mentioned in Joshua, uh, Judges 21-25 is that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The message is that Israel needs a king. You can't get by without someone who is king. Could we just say, we have a king, brothers and sisters. The good news in all of this is that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 reminds us that Jesus came and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The king has already come. The question is whether or not I will serve that king or any other king. He's our king, brothers and sisters. This is why, again, uh, in the first century, when they wanted the Christians to declare Caesar Lord and they refused because Jesus was king, This is why they were persecuted. We will always be persecuted for not worshiping whatever sovereign is on this earth. We should respect him as king. But Jesus is the king of kings. And so, brothers and sisters, that means that his law must be obeyed. Um, In all of the civil authority that he has given, we need to have laws that honor God, and we need to obey laws that honor God. And I will just tell you, we have to defy any law that goes against his law. Uh, Those days are coming. Um, For now... Vote and pray and preach the gospel. Uh, so let me ask a couple of questions here. What what does all this have to do with the gospel? Maybe we should begin first with, what does this say about God? What does Judges 1 and 2, and as we'll see the rest of the book of Judges, what does it say about God? He is holy. He does not want to mess around with false worship. He wants all of our worship. He wants it to be faithful worship. He wants it to be according to what he has commanded. And there there should be no mixing of the worship of paganism into the worship of God. Just shouldn't happen. Right on. What does it say about us? And he's just exactly right. Yeah, there's there's nothing here where God is unfair. Um, He's just. We might not like the punishment that comes with disobeying him, but it's real. And it's just. Um, he would be unjust in not dispensing it. Um, yeah. What does it say about us? <laughs> right on. Wow. We're not holy. I think too, though, it says that he, he helps us. Like, he gave the judges. He yeah. Gave, like, and the things that the people were doing were really bad. Like, it wasn't good. It was yeah. Good at time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, how interesting it's when God is like in the garden, like, don't eat the fruit. It's, it's bad. And they're like, God's holding out on me. Notice, sin always involves us not believing God's word and thinking that he's holding out on us somehow and that we've got to go outside of his will to get something good. Well, that thing is not good for us. Um, right on. Exactly right. So how does this relate to the gospel then? Yeah. Yep. It is no accident that Romans 10, 9, and 10, which is, I would say, the simplest, quickest explanation of the gospel, 
What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to believe what Christ has done and declare him my Lord. It's the same word for king, brothers and sisters. Either I make Jesus my king and I obey him, and then I don't do what's right in my own eyes. I do what's right in the sight of God, and I'm able to do that because the Holy Spirit has been put in me to help me obey. Either I do that or I'm an enemy of God. And that's how it plays out. Well said, brothers and sisters. Thank you for bearing with me here. I'm going to pray, and then who is on for the gospel? All right, cool. Father God, um, it's a sobering thing when I look at what you have said in your word and the commands you've given, and I recognize two things. One, it's so beautiful, right? You, You have not given us something that is ridiculous to do. You've given us what is good for us and good for you, and yet, with our sin nature, we fail. And so we cry out to you for grace, and um, Lord, we thank you for your grace. But Lord, also, I, I will just confess, when I see wickedness now, I feel like it's in our face in a unique way. Um, I feel like I understand more why you judge like you do. Um, so Lord, I pray that you would bring destruction on your enemies, uh, that you would turn your enemies into your children, and um, that your children would grow in obedience to you. Lord, may we disciple our children. May we not be like the children of Israel in the book of Judges. May we follow your sovereign kingship. May we love you. May we proclaim the gospel. And would you grant us victory over the present-day Canaanites that we face. Um, God, put the Ashtaroths and the Baals, uh, put the, the Planned Parenthoods and the Act Blues to open shame, uh, that you would destroy them and all of their wickedness so that your kingdom would come in its fullness and that you would receive glory. May we be faithful and obedient and may we keep proclaiming the gospel. May we not lose sight of that while we're fighting all these other battles. May we keep proclaiming the gospel. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.